Let me pray for us, and we'll get started with our study in Daniel chapter 4. So, please bow with me. Father, I thank you for the morning. I thank you for the summertime. I thank you for the opportunity of, of travel and missions trips. Um, and I ask that you bless, and Father, us as we, as we go, and Father, bless us as we stay. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would do a work now and speak through us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I also forgot about the trip to Morocco. I was talking to a couple in our group that just returned from a medical mission over there. So anyway, lots going on. Pretty exciting. Um, I hate uh, unfinished projects, like house projects. I love, I love projects, but I hate unfinished projects. And I told myself a long time ago that if I was going to be a guy who was doing house projects, that I wanted to be committed to finish, to finish them. Because to me, if I'm, gonna, I'm one of those guys where things have to kind of be put in order. Things don't necessarily have to be clean, like vacuumed and dusted, but things need to be put in order. So for me to properly function in my office, I need to have my desk kind of cleaned. And actually, my office in our church offices has been used several times when like the conference room is, is empty um, and somebody needs to do an interview or something, they'll unlock my office and go in there because the desk is clean. <laughs> and I'll walk in with, oh, who's in my office? <laughs> There's a meeting going on in there. Um, and, but they're like, well, your office was clean and we had to meet with somebody, so here you go. It's like, all right, well, no problem. Um, so anyway, I don't like unfinished projects. Now, Lauren and I um, decided to start a project for our our little baby girl, and thanks to um, Pinterest, um, I don't know what that is, <laughs> just kidding, um, thanks to Pinterest, Lauren found this really cool, it's called an activity board, we have a one-year-old, okay, and so it's this, you know, you get, you get a piece of wood and then you, you bolt onto it, all these different things that the baby can turn dials and knock buzzers and look in mirrors and turn doors and stuff like that. It's just kind of fun and creative, and you just take um, latches, like little, like little chain latch that you have on the hotel door, and just put it on there for her to play with, and she's been loving it. But it turned out to be fairly um, work-intensive, turns out, right? And so, since it's blazing hot outside, I didn't want to work in our sauna garage, so we worked on the, like, on the countertop in the kitchen and on the, on the dining room table, and the place was a wreck for several days. Um, and so there are nuts and bolts and screws everywhere and all this stuff and the, and the wireless or the cordless drill and hammers and screwdrivers all over the place and we're trying to, we're trying to prepare for a one-year-old birthday party too and so there's cake stuff and cupcake anyway the, the place was was a wreck and it was frustrating and Lauren and I commented on like we gotta finish this like let's let's keep going let's do this thing um, and eventually it was done and when it was when it was completed it was very rewarding and we're really Proud of it. I don't think in an arrogant way, but like Evie loves it, and she's when she waddles through the room, she goes over to this thing and starts playing on it, and it's really rewarding. So when I say unfinished uh, project, I think that there's, there's two kinds. There's an unfinished project that's like mid-completion project, and then there's a project that's like abandoned project. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you would say that you maybe grew up in a home where there was abandoned house projects going on? Okay, I went over to visit a friend of mine, well, several years ago, I was with a friend of mine, we went, we went home, we went to D.C. to check out D.C. and he lives 
close to there, and so we stayed at his the home that he grew up in. And, and this place was like a textbook for unfinished projects. His dad was an incredible handyman, which sometimes is a dangerous thing. Um, and his dad essentially built their house, but it was vastly unfinished. And we're talking like half the house painted um, 15 years ago, literally. Like half, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, like the face of the house was one color and the side of the house was another color. And on the side of the house, there was a floating door, you know? It was supposed to have a big deck on it. Ne ne the deck never came, but there's just this door. And if you were to exit this door, you know, you would drop into the bowels of hell or something, you know? But it was very, it wasn't like, it would be nice one day to add a porch here, but this was like a building hazard to have a door hanging out on the second floor or whatever it was. And so, Really, I'm just drawing attention to the fact that you have, if you have an unfinished project, you have mid-completion, which is what Lauren and I had, and then you have abandoned, right? Well, if you are a believer, if you are a Christ follower, if you put your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, uh, we are mid-completion projects, right? We're not abandoned projects. It's called sanctification, you know, that when we became when you became a Christian, if you are, then you were at that point justified, right? Meaning that your sins have been taken care of and you have gone from um, being condemned to then being justified. And that was a one-time event. So when you were saved, past tense, when you were saved in the past, you were justified. Now, you, in the process of living this life on earth, are in the process of being sanctified. So you were saved. But there's a continual sense of you are now being saved. And then one day, when you finally reach heaven, you will then be glorified, in which you will then be eternally saved. So we, if you are a Christ follower, you were saved, justified. You are being saved, sanctified. And then one day, you will be glorified, and you will be complete, completed in your salvation at that point. So there's ter there are terms floating around out there like, already and not yet that have to do with our salvation. So our salvation is sure, but now if you are a Christ follower, you are at that mid-completion stage. And sometimes that mid-completion stage of sanctification can be frustrating, and it can be annoying, and it can be chaotic, which is what I felt like our kitchen was when we were in the middle of the project. It was, it was, it was, it was frustrating. It was a little confusing. It was like, ah, can we get this thing finished? And, it, and, you know, I would say it caused minor levels of stress between Lauren and I as we're just trying to function and, and, and finish this project. But it's important to understand that mid-completion is eternally different than abandoned. And sometimes I believe that we can lose that. And when we fall in life through in, into sin or just in frustration, or just fall into life of things that don't necessarily make sense to us, or we're not where we want to be, or we're not where we think we should be, sometimes we can feel like that we've been abandoned, if you will, in the sanctification process. But we're not. We're not. And there's great joy in that. There's great joy in knowing that as a believer, our sanctification is something that is continuing. Sanctification uh, for the believer is something that God does, but that we participate in. It is not something where we say, I'm going to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, 
and then sit down and then sit back and say, God, do your work through me. Here I am. Take me. But we actually participate in the process of sanctification. Well, how, how do we participate in our own sanctification? We participate through obedience. You know, very simply. Not, not brainwashed robotic obedience of like do exactly what I say from God to you. But rather an obedience that I would equate to um, learning a sport or being disciplined at how to play a sport better. You know, the World Cup is going on. Uh, when I was in middle school, I played a lot of soccer, and I have this distinct memory of um, practicing, and I thought that our coach at the time was just grueling. I was always ticked off at him because we had to run up the hill backwards and do crunches and all that kind of stuff, and if somebody else messed up, the whole team had to drop down and do push-ups, you know? And so I didn't like this guy. Um, he had the high shorts, you know what I'm talking about, like the high-cut um, hair and the whistle, Geyer, Jim Coach Geyer. First name was Jim, of course, right? Um, and so we would do all this stuff, and I remember we were practicing, and I had to throw the ball in from out of bounds, and I did it wrong. And he blew the whistle. Everybody do push-ups, and of course everyone's looking at me, like Danny, you know? And so I didn't know what I did wrong. I was younger at the time, and I threw the ball in wrong. All right, I got called for it, so we all do it. I was like, all right, do it again, Danny. Well, I didn't know what I did wrong, so I, do it, I, I threw the ball in again, and um, he blew the whistle again. I'm like, crap. <laughs> like this whole, the whole team, I'm the enemy now, you know? And so we all had to drop down and do push-ups again. And then he called a water break, and everybody ran in. And there was one of our really good players. His name was Nathan. I still remember. I was like, Nathan, will you help me? <laughs> like, tell me what I did wrong. And he showed me the, the simple process of throwing the ball in. And I learned, and I got better, and the coach saw it, and he's like, hey, this is what you need to be doing, all right? You need to be asking somebody for help, and this guy, he complimented that guy, and it was this process of me just getting better. I became a better player, and I became a better asset to the team because I was learning, I was obeying the rules, you know? So it wasn't this robotic zombie, just do what I'm asking you to do, and don't ask any questions, but the sanctification of me learning the sport better helped me become better and it helped the team become better. So when we are believers, we're called to obey and God works most in our lives through our obedience. God is working in our sanctification. But also, you know, when we fall, when we stumble, when we sin, when we mess up, those are times also when we find ourselves needing to seek humility before God and saying, I blew it. I blew it big time. And if, we were, if, if, if I was to go around and talk to different believers in this room and say, what are times in your life when you really feel like you've seen the Holy Spirit do a, a mighty work in your life, in the, in the story of your life? A lot of times it has to do with the times that we've fallen, right? That I've struggled here, I lost it here, I messed up here, I was utterly lost and confused here, and I turned to God, I looked to the truth, um, I confessed my sin, and then... And then I, I grew, and I saw God work in my life. And the nature of our life in the course of sanctification is that we've got ups and we've got downs, you know? And sometimes it's like this, and sometimes it's like this. But the nature of life is kind of this roller coaster thing where we're doing really well, and then we might blow it a little bit or might just kind of get dry for a little while, and then we kind of fall off and we realize, you know what, I need to get back into the Word. I need to be back in communion with Christ. I need to bump up my prayer life. I need to confess some things, kind of clear house a little bit jump back in and you know the nature of life is this and this is part of the process of sanctification 
And that as we grow, as we go through life, that we hopefully, that the trajectory is that it's in upward motion in our sanctification. Now, I say all that as kind of a precursor to jumping into Daniel 4. Because what I want to focus on this morning is that in our sanctification, in the process of being saved, justified, we were saved, sanctified, we are being saved, glorified, we will be eternally saved. In that process, there's one element that is always present at these upturns right here. Down, back up. There's one element that is always present in our forward motion in our sanctification. And it's humility. Not humiliation. But it's humility. And I'm going to explain that. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. Um, but again, kind of using the soccer analogy, and some of you are soccer players. Um, but as I've been watching some of the World Cup, um, I see terms tossed out there about how the amount of time spent in a game that one team has possession, right? Justin, you're a soccer guy. Like, isn't there strategy into making sure that your team has more time with possession, right? Because it's logical that the more time that you have the ball in your possession, logically speaking, your odds of scoring are going to go up. Real simple, right? And so what I want to draw our attention to is that if there's one thing that is a constant in our upticks, in our sanctification, then we need to be focusing on that. If this element is always a part of our growth process in our sanctification, of the, of the upturns of our sanctification, then we ought to be spending time looking at it and chewing on it and figuring out how we can spend more time there in our life so that our trajectory um, will be more and more bent towards growth. And so that's humility. All right. With that in mind, I want us to look at Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4 gives an amazing example and also proofs to convince us of the truth that humility goes hand in hand with our growth and sanctification as believers. Now, let me get a couple people to uh, read through this. I'm going to need one, two, three, four. Who would like to read? Daniel chapter 1. Let's read the first section. Caleb Copper. I'm going to have you read 1 uh, through 18. All right, next. We've had several. Travis. Uh, 19 through 27. John Robert. 28 through 33. And finally, one more. Sarah. Uh, 34 through the end please. All right. Caleb Copper, if you would start it off and y'all read out loud so we can hear. This is Daniel chapter four, reading the whole chapter. It's one story. All right. Go for it. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the most high God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his works. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. 
So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that it is the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was, its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called out in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass for him by. By for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives to them anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of the people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Bethesdelzer, tell me what it, what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because of the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Thank Daniel. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applies to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness is grand until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by. This is the interpretation of the king, and this is the decree the Most High issues against my Lord and King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone who wishes. If man will leave the stump of the tree and give its roots, then your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by, doing, by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that when your prosperity becomes a All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, 
Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the fields, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to Thank you. What we see here is, is chapter 4, written from, from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now, just as a brief review, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, which is the strongest uh, power in the world at this point in time. <clears throat> they've taken over Israel, and they have taken captive uh, the children of God. And they are now exiles in Babylon. And Daniel is a Jew who is exiled. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, but he begins chapter 4, again, speak, the chapter 4 is from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. He begins chapter 4 with, we see in verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar is starting by saying, hey, something amazing has happened to me. Let me tell you about it right now. All right, so he starts off with a praise. Something great has happened to me. Let me recount to you the story of what God has done in my life. And this is a pagan king. This is not somebody who is under the covenant of God. But yet God is clearly, clearly working through and in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. God is working through his visions. God is working and speaking to him through a prophet, Daniel. And God is speaking to him himself. We see later in the story when in his arrogance he says, Look at all that I have done in Babylon. And he hears from God that you will now be humbled, an audible voice, which things were different back in the Old Testament, through visions and voices and prophets. We don't see a lot of that now. But God is working through this pagan God. So then Nebuchadnezzar recounts the story. I had a dream. There's a big tree. Birds were nesting in it. Beasts were feeding from the fruit and resting in the shade. Somebody from heaven gave a command, chopped down this tree, and all the beasts of the field and the birds flew away, left as a stump to sit out in the grass and get wet with the dew. And he asked, <clears throat> he asked Daniel, what is the meaning of this dream? And Daniel, out of respect, says, O king, may this not be about you. 
Like this is bad news, Cain. May it be for those who hate you, it says in the ESV. But he says, the tree is you. You are mighty. You, you are powerful. You, you are shaping uh, your kingdom. And, 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 the, and, the, and the world is coming under your shade. You were that big. But if you do not acknowledge God, you will be humbled. You will be cut down. And you will begin as to be, behave like a beast. That you'll have the mind of an animal. That you'll crawl on all fours. That you'll grow long hair over, the, over your body. You'll eat grass like cattle. And for seven periods of time, it says, and most scholars believe that's seven years. So it's not just a little, like, let's, let's get better. Seven years, you know? Seven years. But then Daniel says, he, he gives him counsel. He says, listen to me, king. If you turn, if you repent and pursue righteousness and show mercy to the oppressed, you, you can be saved from this. At the end of chapter 4, in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. At this time upon King Nebuchadnezzar, all this time came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace, and the king answered and said to himself, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence for all the glory of my majesty, verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, quote, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat the grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And he gives to whom who he will. That there is somebody that is not Nebuchadnezzar who is more powerful. There is somebody who is not Nebuchadnezzar that is really the one making the rules here. He is the one who is in true power and has dominion, which is the way Nebuchadnezzar started this chapter. How great are his signs, verse 3. How mighty his power. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. And it ends really by him saying the same thing in verse uh, midway through verse 34. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is pagan Nebuchadnezzar giving all credit to the God of the Jews. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will, according to the host of heaven. And none can say, can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? None. Because he is the one who is everything and does everything and is above everything. Nebuchadnezzar, through humility, finds himself humbled before God. And in this cursed state, which God laid upon him, and it brought him to the point of humility, and he found salvation. Humility through salvation or salvation through humility now this is the point we're going to come back to humility brings salvation that's the way it was for Nebuchadnezzar 
At the end of chapter 4, he says in verse 34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. Nebuchadnezzar was out on his rooftop, looking out and saying, Look at all that I have done, and looking down on all that he had done. And he was cursed, he was judged for his pride and his arrogance. And he turned into a wild beast for seven years. And when he finally, after the course of that time, looked up to heaven, again, as it says in verse 34, I lifted my eyes to heaven, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Salvation came to him in his kingdom. His, his, his mental capacities were restored, and his kingdom was restored to him. Pagan king here. All right? And not only that, but it says that he was then blessed further in his kingdom upon his restoration. Humility brings salvation. Now, what, what do you think this says to the exiles? God's chosen people, they don't want to be in Babylon. They're looked down upon. This is not their God. This is not their king. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Yet our God is giving him visions. And our prophet is interpreting his visions. And he is, falls on his face in utter humility and is eating with cows, crawling on his feet, probably pooping on the ground. And other people have to take care of him. And he's supposed to be the king the, the mighty king of Babylon for seven years and he has a royal pin you know well, they just got to throw a hay in there because that's what he's eating what does this say to the Jews there you're discouraged and weary and tired think about how solemn God is that if he's looking out and doing work in a pagan king's heart that rules over you Surely he will take care of you no you hear that? King Nebuchadnezzar's seven years was not a private seven years. Like his kingdom knew that he had been turned into a beast. You know? And his kingdom knew when he came out of it. Because Nebuchadnezzar, the king, acknowledges God to his kingdom by this very story. At the beginning, at the end of him retelling the story, that a mighty work of the God of the heavens has happened through me, that he is in all, he is above all, he has dominion over all, he is everlasting, and his, and his rule goes from generation to generation. Now I think that there could be two responses from the children of Israel. One, I think, could be, come on, God. Right? Who is he? You know? It's almost like, you know, Hitler coming to Christ. For people to be like, really? That dude is bad and evil. And look at, look at, look at how he has been frivolous with the lives of humans. You know? It's like a, a criminal or a mass murderer. And, and people could look on that and just be like, really? Is there no real justice here? How is it that God has blessed him? Not only that, but like his kingdom has been restored. I mean, I think he should be left a beast forever by the way that he has. I mean, he, he took down Jerusalem. 
He leveled it. He salted the fields. You know? How could this, how could God say that guy? Isn't that ultimately pride? I mean, I, to, to be able, if, if I were to say that about somebody, you know, honestly, if, if, if I believe in the God of the universe that is, is, is above all things, and I found myself saying, come on, God, him? Isn't that ultimate pride? That, that is the exact opposite of humility. And really, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm sitting here digging my own grave saying, hey, I deserve that God, not him. I'm better than him, God. Don't you see me, God? I mean, I might not be living for you, but I'm not Nebuchadnezzar, you know? I'm not that guy. I mean, I haven't, I haven't taken the life of anybody. I mean, how is it that he gets it and not me? I mean, that is pride. That is arrogance to the nth degree. So that could be one response from the, from the people of God that are in exile. But the second response is really what Bones just said. Is the children of Israel who are in exile could look at the situation that Nebuchadnezzar found himself in, judged, and then came out of, and they could say, if our God could change Nebuchadnezzar, then maybe, just maybe, we are a mid-completion project and not a band. Right? Maybe the exiles, they knew that they had lived a life of sin and judgment and that God was judging them by allowing them to be conquered and then exiled to a foreign land. But what... What an advertisement of God's plan to all of God's people to say, look, I am still at work here in Babylon. I still exist. My promises are still true. My covenant still holds. You are not abandoned. I am still here. And I work in ways that you, it might blow your mind. But the project that I have is mid-completion and that you I am at work in you and your people, even though things are bad, even though things might be confusing, even though you might not like your situation. You are not abandoned. So how do you come out of this? Humility. The same way that Nebuchadnezzar came out of this. Humility. I'm going to define this for us. Three things that defines humility. One. is a proper understanding of God. Second, is a proper understanding of man or you. And then you must submit to it. Proper understanding of God is that he is all. All, in all, through all, above all, in control of all, always has been, always will, eternity past, present, eternity future, is all above all. Proper understanding of, of man, we have no control. We do not decide things. That God is the one who allows kings to be brought up, and God is the one who allows them to be taken down. And it's not simply an understanding of that God is bigger than me, and that I don't have as much control as God, but an actual submission to it and say, I am now going to bow myself. I'm going to bow my mind. I'm going to bow my heart. I'm going to bow my life to this truth. And that is what humility is. 
Humility is kind of like, oh, no, look how bad I am. That's not it. Humility is saying, God, you, you are in control here. You, you are bigger than, than my mind is even able to comprehend. And you know what? I am, I am not in control here. Not that you're sitting there um, waffling in, in self-pity of like, oh, I can't do anything. But God, you are the one who's working. And I am not the decision maker here. You are the one who is in ultimate control. And I need to fall on my knees and fall on my face with my palms open and say, God, you are all and in all. And I need you. I need to follow you. I need to obey you because I don't have anything. And so the only thing that I have is I need to fall in submission in humility to you. And through humility is when I find God working most in my life. Humility brings salvation. Humility brought salvation to Nebuchadnezzar, both physical and arguably eternal. We don't know how Nebuchadnezzar finished his life, but we know that the last words that we hear from Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible are him praising the true God of heaven. We see that humility brings salvation to the children of Israel. Listen to the, the, the overwhelming text in Scripture that talks about how humility brings salvation. I'm just going to read through a couple of these. Isaiah 66 says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 2 Samuel 22 says that you save a humble people. You save, salvation comes to humility, you save a humble people. 2 Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked, wicked ways, then I, will hear, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal, heal their land. Salvation, humility brings salvation. Psalm 76, but you, you who are feared, who stand before you when once anger sorry wrong verse from the heavens you uttered judgment and the earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble humility brings salvation Psalm 149 he adorns the humble with salvation Proverbs 3 toward the scorner he is scorn he is scornful but to the humble he gives favor. It kind of goes on and on. Humility brings salvation. The children of Israel were promised that through these scriptures. God was telling the children of Israel, his covenant people, in exile, I'm still here. You know what's kind of cool in our sanctification now is that our salvation Though it's very personal in your relationship with God, um, is not designed to be just an individual act in the sense that when God saves you, He includes you and uses you in a huge, huge plan. It's not just you. Um, we have a man-to-man -man study 
on uh, Friday mornings, and we're going through what it means to be a disciple maker. Josh Romine was speaking a couple weeks ago, and one of the things that he said was how when we go to heaven, it says that we will receive rewards. All right, heaven is not a reward. A reward is something that is earned. Heaven is a gift. Um, but when we get to heaven, um, as as a gift, salvation. We once we were there, we will see receive rewards. And what? And he, he was asking the question, "What will these rewards be?" And he proposed the idea that if you are a believer and you live your life for Christ and you and you walk this roller coaster of sanctification, that God will use you to impact His kingdom in ways that are like a ripple effect throughout the course of history. My grandma and grandpa, um, my grandpa was a telephone lineman back, back in the day, you know, and when, you know, when he passed away, he had all the old telephone tools and the little things you put in your feet that are the spikes, you know, actually climb the tower, you know what I mean? So he did that kind of stuff. When he and my grandma retired, they um, decided to go um, overseas and work for a couple years while their health allowed. I think they were maybe gone for five years and worked at a Christian radio station um, that was broadcasting the gospel. Because my grandpa had like the technical nuts and bolts skill, right, to help this, these big transmitters that they would send out uh, the gospel over South America. And, you know, I, didn't, I don't come from a wealthy family, but my grandma and grandpa um, did that for a couple years of their retirement. And when I was like in second grade, um, we got to go visit them. So we saw them. My sister, who's older than I, um, we got to walk around the, uh, the towers, the big radio towers. This is like the 80s, you know. So we're not talking digital stuff. We're talking like the old towers and the big discs, you know, that were broadcasting the gospel. Anyway, long story short, it piqued the interest of my sister, who was like 10 at the time. She's older than me now. She went to college, she got a communication, a Christian communication degree, and she spent the last 15 years in Africa um, working for the same radio broadcasting ministry, um, broadcasting the gospel to the continent of Africa. She's in South Africa, which is at the bottom, and they broadcast everything south of the Sahara, you know? Millions and millions of people. And it's, it's really cool to think that the people that are coming to know Christ because of the work of my sister and my brother-in-law in South Africa is a direct connection to whoever it was that led my grandpa Shad to Christ. You know what I mean? And so even though that guy died, whoever led my grandpa to Christ, you know, years ago, it's cool to think that when some African in some village is listening to a solar-powered radio, <clears throat> I'm almost getting choked up, you know, and then comes to Christ, that that guy's receiving a reward, right? Isn't that cool? It's like God used him for God's greater purpose, and he's receiving these rewards. And so who's to say that by God doing a mighty work through a pagan king, that he wasn't actually just using Nebuchadnezzar as a radio to broadcast his own truth to his own people? Look, I'm at work. You're not abandoned. You're mid-completion. I am still here. My promises are still good. And if you will humble yourself, you will see me. And I will do a mighty work in you. 
but you must humble yourself. With this whole idea that humility brings salvation, we even see this as messianic prophecies. Zechariah in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, 9 says, says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, meaning children of Israel. Rejoice, children of Israel. This is a prophecy. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Again, my chosen people. Behold, your king is coming. He's coming one day. There's a hope. There's a future. There's a promise. He is coming to you. Righteousness and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Your salvation is coming through humility. That is a foretelling of Jesus Christ in the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 5. And it says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus, the prophesied coming Messiah, he sent his two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village, and in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie it, bring him to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, quote from Zechariah 9.9, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus Christ is the avenue of our salvation now. We're on the other side of the exile. But we get to look back on the humble coming of Christ and his humility brought our salvation, our eternal salvation that will be ultimately seen through the process of our sanctification and solidified through glorification. In Philippians 2, it says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is the mind of Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did, not, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, Jesus Christ. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, through his obedience, through his humility, God has then exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, this is salvation, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That our salvation, our coming acknowledgement of our Savior, came through humiliation, through humility. Humility brings salvation. It worked for Nebuchadnezzar. It was broadcast to the children of Israel. It's the very coming of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel for us in our lives. And now, when we as Christians live a life and are walking down this trek of ups and downs of sanctification, we must acknowledge that we are not abandoned, but we are mid-project. And that as we seek to grow and as we participate in our own sanctification, it demands our humility. Um, how many of you have been to New York City? Most. Um, 
it's been years. I've probably been five or six times over the years, but um, it's amazing, you know. There's a moratorium in Charleston on how high you can build buildings, you know. You got the Jasper, right? That's like our skyscraper. Isn't it Carl? Sergeant Jasper, right? And, but in New York, it's natural when you go for the first time, or if you go again after it's been a while, to just kind of be like, I didn't realize your time was up. I'll wrap it up. But you're kind of like, whoa, right? Because your attention is drawn up, right? And I've always heard people joke around about the country bumpkins, <laughs> you know, who are like, oh, you could tell who's not from New York because he's the guy going, whoa. Our attention up is not natural. It is not a natural character, character trait of us to be humble. It's not. We tend to look out and look down. It is where we go naturally. And when we do that, we lose humility and we fall in life and, 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 and we lose our obedience and we get other things that take its place of God. And it's a struggle. And that's what introduces fear in our life. That's what introduces anxiety. That's what introduces confusion. Think about it. If, if, if you were to start every day, and I, whenever I find myself leveled with just busyness, I have to go back and say, you know what? The most important thing in my day today is not getting done my list. And I've been very overwhelmed lately. We're leaving in a few days for Czech Republic. I'm teaching a bunch of times on that trip. Uh, I'm organizing it. I'm, I'm leaving Lauren and Evie here, trying to make things are all set over there, trying to make sure that things run smoothly here while I'm gone, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I've been overwhelmed. And I've had a huge list every day. And it's easy for me to start my day and just be like, ah, God, help me get done with my list. That is often my first prayer. And that helps me none, you know, at all. But when I feel so overwhelmed with all the stuff I have to get done, while at the same time still trying to be a good father, still trying to be a good husband, when I find myself way overwhelmed with that and I actually step back and just say, you know what, God? You're in control. You are in control. God, you were the one that's going to work in hearts in Czech Republic, not me. God, you were the one that's going to keep my wife safe. God, you were the one that's going to look over Evie. God, God, you have a bigger plan that, that is so much bigger than July 2014. God, you have been at work for centuries behind me. And God, you have a plan that you already know for centuries in front of me. God, God you, you know when my last breath will be. You are in control. You have set things up and you can take things down when you want. You chose the day of my birth and you chose the day of my death. You know and you are on and you're in control. And my stuff today really is nothing. And I need to put that before you and say, God, you are, you are the one I need to focus on, not my list. And my challenge and my charge for us is that we live this way. It's easy to say, I tell you, there was a point in my time when I was going through so much frustration. I was in college, and I remember somebody specifically telling me, you know that God's in control? And I told them, I was like, I know that, and that doesn't help me. I said that. I was like, I know that this is all for a reason. I remember talking on the phone specifically in my dorm room, and I was like, I know, I know, I know, I know. But you know what? This doesn't help me. I said that. And, you know, we hung up, and I don't know what the response of the person was. They were speaking the truth 
The same truth that God was broadcasting through the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Humble yourself before me and I will lift you up. I'm going I'm to end with this. The New Testament. Hum, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up, it says in the NIV. 1 Peter. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God because he's the one who's mighty and not you. So that at the proper time he may exalt you. Matthew 20, 23. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The key to our sanctification is not anything but the work of Christ that has brought salvation to us in our humility that has the upticks in our sanctification is based on our proper understanding of God in his place, a proper standing of us in our low place, and our submission to it. That's how we grow. Easy to say and hard to do. <laughs> but there's reward and there's promise. We are mid-completion. We're not abandoned. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your love. I thank you that you are God and above all, and that we are not. And Father, I ask that you would be with these, uh, all that are in this room, Father, the, those that are Christ followers, that you would help them grow. Father, for those in this room that are not Christ followers, that they would see that there is a bigger, a better plan that they must submit their life to in humility in order for them to be saved. In Jesus' name. Thank you very much. Hope you all have a great rest of the weekend. Go USA.